Please take your Bibles and open it again to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Glad you came back. Someone said to me a little while ago, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And it made me realize afresh that I don't have the ability to deal with that hunger. It's God alone who can feed his people. And that's who we need tonight. The Lord to not just look down and see us where we are, but to come down. And to break the bread of life. And to do something that no man could ever do. I pray that he will indeed feed his sheep tonight with the finest of his wheat. First John chapter 2, well-known verses 15, 16, and 17. Let's once again read the Lord's word. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And God will bless the reading of his word for his own glory. Would you bow your head and heart with me for a moment? Let's all ask the Lord to come and speak. Father in heaven, we turn now to this time when the word of the Lord is proclaimed. We realize that we stand in need of a fresh anointing the hand of the Lord to be upon the preacher and upon the hearer. The thing we fear the most is to be left to our own devices, to be left to a written-out sermon, to be left to the mere hearing of the word and know very little of the doing of it. Save us from this, we pray. Spirit of God, thou art the only one who can open these ears of ours to really hear and to grasp the message that thou hast for us all. Thou art the only one who can make us to see what we need to see, what we need to understand, not in the, just the grammar of the Scriptures, but to understand that the, the word that thou hast for our hearts tonight from thy scripture cause our, our minds to be shut out from all the distractions that the devil would seek to raise up. We want to sense once again that thou art in this house, that thou hast answered the prayers of thy people, that thou wilt, Lord, increase our hunger for it needs to be increased. And with that increase of hunger, Lord, we know that thou dost not come to play with the minds of thy people. Thou dost give the hunger 
we bless thee that it might be satisfied by thee. So therefore, our God, we are expecting thee to speak tonight. Oh, give the hearing ear, we pray, and give the obedient heart. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We come back once again to the, to the Christian's pursuit, his striving after, pushing for holiness of life. What has taken our attention to this point on the subject is this, this matter of resisting the devil so that for this purpose, James says, he would flee from us and flee from us in fear. Since the Word of God describes those who end up in heaven as overcomers, and especially since it says in reference to Satan that they overcame him, they overcame him, then how the devil is defeated, how he is made to flee in fear, should be. It should be of the utmost interest to any Christian who is in earnest about wanting to be like Jesus and wanting to live a life like Christ. If that's not what you're interested in, there's something else wrong. If there is no heart desire, there's no pressing on in your daily walk with God, I want to be more like the Master, and you're not content with just singing the songs that talk about that, but it's something you really want. You want it more than just when you come to church and the best face is put on where you expected to look holy. It's when you're home with the family who knows you so well. And it's more than that. It's when, you're, when no one else is around that you say, Lord, I want to be holy because you're holy. It's not for anybody else I just want to be holy in your sight. Likeness to Christ is likeness to the greatest overcomer that ever walked the face of the earth. Certainly Satan is dead and earnest about overcoming us. He knows, he's read the, he's read the verses. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. He knows that verse. And so he's trying his best to overcome us, to defy God and the promises of God's word. And it, it, it would only make sense that we would be dead in earnest about overcoming him. I remind you again of that oft-quoted dictum of Martin Luther. We've sung it many times. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. There is no stronger or deadlier foe than we have to face outside of ourselves than the prince of the power of the air. The one with whom we wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these principalities, these powers in heavenly places. 
And the word wrestle speaks of hand-to-hand combat, close combat. It's intense, as I said last evening. He's roaming about, to use another picture in Scripture, like a lion looking to devour you and to devour me. He wants to devour your pursuit of holiness, to devour your testimony, to get you to fall any opportunity he can. To that end, we have turned our attention to the tactics that he uses to war against us, to get us to sin, to get us off the path of holy living. If he's going to be resisted and made to flee, then you and I need to understand about his strategies, and that will make us better equipped to oppose him and stand against his wiles and live and worship God in the beauty of holiness. That is our beauty. Someone was praying about that in the time before the service. That is our beauty. It is holiness. And it should be shining out in our lives. If I may change metaphors for a moment, it's like the aroma. You know, those, those early apostles, they, they took knowledge they had been with Jesus. There was something about how they talked and how they lived that made that clear. The aroma that we give off should not stink. It should smell of Christ. That's all part of the beauty that should adorn the people of God. Sin, undealt with, unrepented of, makes us smell not so sweet. It brings an ugliness about it, and you all know what it's like. You all know what it's like to act out. You all know what it's like to act ugly. We've all done it. I know you folks don't say amen in Northern Ireland, and that's fine with me, but I know there's got to be an amen in your heart going on when I say we know what it's like to act ugly. When we're acting ugly, we're not acting like Christ. That's what this is about. You want to be effectual. You want to be used. The holier you are, the more like Jesus you are, the more you will be used in his kingdom. That particular area under consideration just now is how Satan, how he works to get us to disobey the word of God. Because obedience, we're obeying the word from the heart, that is holy living. And so we fall, as we saw yesterday, we fall short of this great end for which God has created us, and that's to glorify him by our living, our holy living, and to enjoy him. And Satan knows that the effect of sin and disobedience is going to be doing just the opposite. It will dishonor the Lord, and it's going to leave us very unhappy, very miserable because of the guilt that comes in. You know, folks, if if the Holy Ghost is living in you, if you're saved, He dwells in you. And there's no way you can just keep on ad nauseum living like the world and be happy. It's not going to happen. He will convict you. You, you go astray and he goes after you and brings you back. That's, that's the story over and over again. So you, you can't be happy without striving for holiness. It's how he goes about doing that that 
we began to think about last evening, and that tactic is temptation. He's the tempter. I made the statement last night, and I make it again this evening, the devil's chief tool to tempt the believer to sin against God and his word, to get him off this path to holy living, this, this desire, that, this push for holiness, is the world. The world. It is most interesting that the words of James, this resists the devil and he will flee from you. It's the context that's, that's really interesting. The effects that his tactic of the world was having upon the believers. These were Christians. The Lord's people in the churches to whom he was writing were fighting among themselves. There was strife and there was division. If there's strife in your home, you've got a Christian home and there's strife in your home, husbands and wives aren't getting along, they're talking, they're fighting like cats and dogs, there's always some kind of an argument going on, I know something is happening there, and the devil is using the world to bring about that strife. He does the same thing in churches. This is the context of resisting the devil. There was anger in those churches among Christians and jealousy and bitterness and hatred even. That's, you know, ye kill, ye kill, he said. He wasn't referring to, to little murdering. He was alluding to that, you know, if you've hated your brother, you've already killed him in your heart. Hatred. Now, that's anything but Holiness. Anything but glorifying God and enjoy Him. And the reason why all of this was going on, James says, was because of your lusts. There it comes up now. It's because of your lusts. He uses three different words in the original language to speak of lusts. In verse 2 of chapter 4, it is the lusts. That word means longing for or craving. He then speaks of desire. That word means to burn with zeal. It's a passionate desire. And then in verse 4, the last, verse 3, the last part of it, the word lust is used again. This time that word means desire for pleasure. There's a whole lot of lusting going on in these churches. A whole lot of lusting going on by God's people. And it was wreaking havoc. It, 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 well, you know about James... <laughs> There was a big problem with pride. You know, everyone wanted to be a teacher. And that was pride, and that was the pride of life. So James now says in chapter 4, verse 4, Know ye not? Keep in context, this is the, the, the lust that you all have. It's causing all these problems. It's anything but holy living. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He's now brought us to the world. All these lusts, all these problems was because of their mindset, their attitude toward the world. It was having a very adverse effect on how those Christians lived. 
I don't think we actually realize how potent that lust of the world actually is. How much of it is in our homes. How much of it is in our churches. The devil has already done his job. Deceived. Satan had tempted them and ensnared them to such a degree that they didn't realize that the way they were living made them look like what? An enemy of God. It made them look like an enemy of God. Why? Because they were having an illicit, an illicit love affair with the world. That's what is meant when he said, ye adulterers and adulteresses. He wasn't referring to the sexual immorality of adultery. This was spiritual adultery that he was referring to. You've got a love affair with the world, and it's wreaking havoc in your walk, in your spiritual life. You look like you're a friend of the world and an enemy of God by how you're acting. If we would just look at that and this whole, this whole topic of the pursuing of holiness, it's showing to the world and showing to God's people that I want to show by my life that I am an enemy of anything in this world and I am a friend of God and a friend of all that is heavenly and spiritual and holy. It is this sad fact about Satan's tremendous ability to lead Christ's people into sin through the lusts of the world that brings up John's statement that we read this evening, which, as I said, I think is one of the fullest statements in the New Testament on just what this word world means. Christians, Christians are being told, Christians, Love not the world, neither the things in the world. If you were here last night, you remember that I, the only thing I sought, I sought to do was to define our terms. You have to define your terms, and not just be guessing what the world means. The world, Satan uses the world to seduce God's people away from that holy path away from glorifying the Lord, and away from happiness. Christians are not to be worldly. You know that. Their their life should not be characterized by worldliness. A, A worldly Christian is a contradiction in terms. So it's critical that we understand what James and John mean by this word world. Not only will it prevent us from from having unbiblical views of worldliness, because if we have unbiblical views of worldliness, I will tell you, we will have unbiblical views of holiness. They, They go hand in hand. It will help us to understand how Satan uses the world to tempt us to sin. 
Did you all write down that definition of world last night? The world, that organized system of humanity over which Satan rules as its prince. It's his kingdom. It is organized. It's his domain. And the world lieth under his control. It is the world that lives as if God does not exist, as if he doesn't see anything or he doesn't care about anything. He doesn't care how people live. He doesn't care about how you live, how you talk, how you think, what you do, where you go, where you don't go, what you love, what you hate, as if he does not exist and care about those things at all. That's the world. It's the world that has rejected God, that wants nothing to do with God, and has rebelled against Him. And those who are of the world have no thought, no thought of God, but only think in terms of this world. And their life in this world is governed by their human instincts and their base desires, their base lusts. Perhaps the best way to sum up the New Testament what it means when it says the word world, it's, it's everything, anything and everything that's opposed to God, anything and everything, as I said last evening, that will come between us and the Lord, that will deter us from going down the, the narrow way. So we come back again to this chief end in life. So the world is anything that would prevent us hinder us from glorifying the Lord and enjoying Him as we should. So the prince of this world comes to us, and he tempts us to live a life as if God doesn't exist, and that the real enjoyment, we're going to be happy by all these lusts, by all these temptations, and if we'll just listen to Him and do what our flesh tells us to do, We're going to have a great time. So, how does he do this? How does he bring this temptation to get us where we actually fall for it? Again and again and again. Number one, the devil seeks to convince us that the world is our friend and not our enemy. The Holy Ghost said through John, love not the world. Love not. Do not love the world. So what is Satan going to do? What? Love the world. It's your friend. Embrace it. It's not your enemy. And he will come up with all means to try to paint a pretty picture on that which is absolutely abhorrent. Something that is an abomination to God, he detests with all of his infinite holy being, and yet he will paint it in fair colors and make it look so attractive. I make that deduction from those two words, love not. Now the verb, the verb form that is used by John, it it can have one of two meanings. It is an imperative, but it's active. 
It could mean stop loving the world. That could be a legitimate interpretation. Stop loving it. Or it could mean do not have, do not be in the habit of loving the world. Think about that. that, that there would be no need for the Holy Spirit, whatever one you want to take, there would be no need for the Holy Spirit to inspire those words to be written if Christians were not prone to love the world. Every one of us here tonight have a proneness to love the world. If you don't think so, you have been hoodwinked. You've been deceived. You have it. I have it. But why so? How is this devil so effective? And you know he's effective. In tempting Christians to love this world, which is so anti-God, so satanic, so evil. Oh, we can hate the, the, the politicians who hate God and be so against them and yet be attracted to the world that they serve when they're so anti-God. I know Christians in my country that will get far more upset at some Democrat winning the office than they will the world that's right in their own home. Something's wrong. You would never, you'd never count someone a friend of yours who broke into your home, ravaged your wife, and cut the throats of your children, would you? Of course not. They're not a friend, they're an enemy. If you were warned that that just might happen on any given week or any given day, you would take every precaution to see that you and your family were secure and safe from that, wouldn't you? This is an enemy that's plotting our death. He's looking to, to wreak havoc in my home. He's not a friend. But one of the most subtle and the most successful methods of criminals has been through creating the illusion that they were friends of the very ones they're going to rob or kill. They might come as landscape people or maids or whatever. They have a plan the whole time. It's to come and give the appearance that I'm your friend. I'm behind you. I'm backing you. And once they get in, of course, they do the damage. The unsuspecting victims would never have brought them into their home, never have brought them into their friendship unless they were convinced that they were actually their friends. And that's exactly what Satan does. In order to tempt us to sin against God who is holy, to sin against his law, that's exactly what he does. 
And he tries to make us think he's our friend. That this worldly thing, whatever the worldly thing is, isn't going to harm us. We can embrace it. It's going to do us good. And all the while it's wreaking destruction. Spiritual destruction. He finds within our hearts the strange thing is a willingness to believe it. And so the temptation is to love the world. That means to desire it, to want it, to want the things of the world since the world is not the enemy because an enemy is to be hated. An enemy is to be fought against. They're anything but friendly. That enemy wants to slay me. That enemy wants to overcome me. Overcome my home, overcome my church. We're at war. So what is it to do this forbidden thing that the devil tempts us to do to lead us into sin? Well, what is it to love the world? And therefore, how can we recognize worldliness? Number one under this first heading. To love the world is to esteem the world. To love the world is to esteem the world, to hold it in high regard. Oh, Mr. Wagner, I don't do that. Really? Let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper. When you love something or someone, you hold them in high esteem. You have a very high regard for them. Every time, I'll embarrass him now, but every time I first met Mr. Douglas many years, I was a student. He was introduced as the inimitable J.D. by Mr. Cairns. I had high regard for him, and as I got to know him, that regard only got higher. Esteem him. Value him. When you do have a high esteem for something or someone, you place great value on it. And those who love the world place tremendous value. They highly esteem the world's opinions, its mindset, its judgments, its acceptance, its attitudes, its value system, they have a high regard for it. For example, you say, give me an example. Well, it's almost like a sidebar right now, but I don't know if they do it here, and I might be getting myself into trouble, but I'm not really worried about it because it's still the fact. But in my country, it's a very common thing to see girls and guys alike, the younger generation, these, these blue jeans, and they have holes all in them. And they bought them like that. 
And they paid serious money for them. Now, when I was a kid, my mom had patches you ironed over the holes in the knees. She didn't want her kids to look like rag muffins. Why in the world would you pay $150, maybe 125 pounds, for a pair of jeans that are full of holes and rips? I mean, you need to seriously ask that question. I don't know if the people here do it, but I will tell you one thing, it's insanity. Why would you do that? It's already deteriorated. Why would you do that? I'll tell you why. You want the acceptance of the world. You want to look like the world. You would be viewed as weird if you didn't. Now you tell me, is that not esteeming the world's opinion above the... Even the opinion of common sense, let alone the opinion or the view of the mindset of the Almighty God. Why would you pay 75 to 100 bucks for a t-shirt because it had a little logo up here that was popular? And you could get the same t-shirt without the logo for $20. Why would you do that? It's cool. The world's going to look at me and think, he's got money, he's important, or he's cool, whatever that might be. Now, folks, these, these are minor things here. But they reveal so much about what is it that's driving us? Where do we place our value? Where, what is our value system? When you want to have the world's acceptance... That's saying I put a lot of value on the world's opinion. It even affects the, the clothes that I buy, the food that I buy, the cars that I drive. You tell me the devil hasn't done a number? And if it's in something, and there's the insidiousness of it all, that's him just getting in. What seems to be so innocuous, but it's not innocuous. To love the world means you have a high regard for the things of the world and no regard for the things of God. When those wedding invitations were given out in, in Luke chapter 14, there were those who refused to come. Why? Because they held their farms. This is, this is part of the parable. They held their farms and their oxen and their wives and the things of the world were in high regard than the invitation to the wedding feast of Christ. That's the world. Christ said in Luke 16, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. That's pretty blunt. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, so, so could it be, understanding that he is this deceitful, that he tries to make this world our friend, could it be that there are actually things in our homes, in our hearts, in our lives that God views as an abomination? 
Are you willing to at least think about it? You will be if you're in earnest about pursuing holiness. Does that make sense? When Christians fall prey to the devil's temptations to love the world, to esteem it, they will value the approval of the world more than the approval of God himself. They will have a higher regard for temporal treasures than they do for heavenly treasures. They will labor to lay up for themselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves do break in and steal and not labor for the heavenly treasures where there is no rust or moth or thieves to break in and steal. And it's shown by how they live, what's more important to them. They will seek to conform themselves to the fashion of this world, even though God has said that that's going to pass away. It's temporary. It's always changing. They're plagued with worldliness when they esteem, they crave the approval of those around them and will avoid looking foolish or being rejected for their Christian faith. That's all about loving the world. You can't give it any other definition than that. Moreover, we love the world when our thoughts, our thoughts are fixed on the world. You think much about the things you love. You think much about the one you love. It's inevitable. For instance, David said in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. And then what did he say next? It is my meditation all the day. I love it. And so I think about it all the time. Not just on the Sabbath. Not just in special meetings. Not just when I've had devotions all the day. We have been ensnared by Satan if we find the vast majority of our thoughts are taken up with the pleasures and the pursuits and the prosperity of the world. And only scant thoughts given to the spiritual prosperity of our own souls, of our spouses, of our children, of the work of God. I'll let someone else take care of that. I'm busy. I've got things to do and places to go and people to see. And it just takes so much time. I don't really have a much time for God or for the work of the Lord. Really. All that is saying is, I have been duped by the devil and I'm going to tell it to you to your face, and I have no idea. I have this luxury, you know, of not living with you all on a day-in and day-out basis, so I get to say these things because no one can say, you know, you're just trying to get at me. I'm not trying to get at anybody. I want the Lord to get at anyone who has been duped by the devil to think that you can go on and live like that, and it's not loving the world because it's, 
It is loving the world. And guess what? There's not going to be any change in your life. There's not going to be any change in your family. No change in what you do and don't do until that is acknowledged. And you see it. I have been loving the world. My thoughts have been on the world. And I didn't even realize it. Oh, I popped into church now and then. Or I was very faithful and that was, but really? What consumes my time and my thoughts is something that's going to just pass away. And it won't amount to anything on the day of judgment. In Philippians 3.19, Paul describes those who are the enemies of the cross as they that mind... That means to set one's mind on, they mind earthly things. And the sad truth is that not only do the enemies of the cross mind earthly things, worldly things, but so do the friends of the cross. You, You remember what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say to Peter in Matthew 16, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou savorest not. That word savorest, you do not mind. That's your thinking. You do not mind the things of God, but those that be of men. Peter, you're loving the world. He tells Peter that. And if Peter the apostle, who sat under the tutelage of the greatest preacher in the world, saw the miracles done by Christ, can be found lusting after the world, you better believe that you and I will be found doing it. this, well, set your affection on things above, Colossians 3, 2. Affection there is the word mind. Set your mind upon things above, not on things on the earth. Because what you think about ends up determining how you live your life. Holy living, that's the action, that's the behavior, is always preceded by a change in our thinking. When there's a change in our thinking, there's a change in our living. If there's no change in our thinking, if there's no change in what fills our minds, our attitudes, our thought life, then there's not going to be a change in our living. We will just keep on going on day in and day out, sort of a humdrum Christian life when we could enjoy so much more. How much more do you want to enjoy of the Lord? You ever asked yourself that question? How much more do you want to enjoy of your God? How much more do you want to enjoy usefulness to the Lord? Or have you said to yourself, well, I'm pretty useful. Not really a whole lot more I can do. Really? Really? It's not true. You're lying to yourself. Do you really want to pursue holiness? We love the world, thirdly when we spend 
the bulk of or the best of our time and our energy on the things of the world. You see, love, as I'm sure you all know, love, love must act. It's not simply feelings. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's, it's always in Scripture, love is acting. Thoughts and desires must find expression. And when we love something, we show it by doing whatever we can to be with it. I love, now I can do it, not so much some time ago, but I can think back upon the days with my wife when we were what you call over here at Curtin. I lived in Maryland. She lived in New Jersey. It was about a three-hour car ride if I did the speed limit. But we were, had just started doing this. We became an item, as you say. And I would be able on the weekends to drive up to New Jersey. And I didn't ma- it didn't matter the gas. It just I wanted to be with her. Why? Because I loved her. You look for any and every opportunity to get to the thing or the one you love. The world labors for the meat that perishes. Why would it do that? Why would you labor for meat that perishes? Because you love it. Why would you labor for the world? Why would you desire the things that are only going to hurt you? Because you love it. So, loving the world... It's going to show itself because that's what you want to spend the time with. Aside from your own loved ones, I get that. You want to spend, you want to be around those you love. What do you enjoy spending, what do you call the best time with? Where would it be? At work, I just love my job. Love getting up and going in there. And people are like that. They just love their work. Or would it be your children? Would it be your spouse? Would it be just other people? Just love being with people. But what about this love that shows itself for the Lord? Is it there? I have to ask the questions. And I realize it may make you uncomfortable. But I would not be true to my God if I did not face us all with these kinds of questions because we ought to be saying with David, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, any worldly way in me. Because I want to be an overcomer. I just don't want to live some ho-hum Christian life. When you love the world... You become upset and dejected when you don't get the things of the world that you want. 
or you lose them. When we lose something or someone that we love, we mourn because that which we love is gone. We grieve. A man who is in love with the world will lament when the things of this world are taken from him. Or when he cannot get the things of the world that he so badly craves. It's exactly why you've had people that have come into a church, they profess salvation, all that's wonderful, but eventually they go right back to where they were. You want to know why? Because the love of the world was never taken out of their hearts. They still craved it, and they went right back to it because that was their love. Even though we have been saved, there's a reason John wrote, love not, love not the world. Why do you think the church of Christ is where she is now spiritually? The love of the world. We have left our first love. The, the devil has done a tremendous job of that temptation. And it would be so shocking to so many if those very things that were loved were taken away. Can't live without it. Because his job is to convince us the world is our friend. And it's just been killing us all along. Secondly, the devil uses the world outside of us to tempt the world that is within us. It's easy to think about the world out there. But there's a world that's within the heart of every believer. There's a world in your heart. All that is in the world means... All that the world lives for, all that which the world values, all that it esteems, that which is their aim and purpose for living. That's, that's all that is in the world. And John characterizes all of that in this world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's important. We have to define another term, and that's the word lust. There's nothing wrong with a word. Perfectly good word. It's not a dirty word. For instance, Luke 25, verse 15, And he said unto them, Christ, to his disciples, at the Last Supper, Passover, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's the exact same word. 
Or Philippians 1.23, For I am, Paul says, in a strait betwixt the two, having a desire, a longing to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. It's the word lust. So there's nothing wrong with this particular word. It's all about context. The problem comes in for the Christian when the thing that he desires and longs for is of the world. Now you've got to identify that for yourself. I mean, I could produce a list of things that I think are of the world, but what good is that going to do if they're not on your list? Then it comes back to, well, you're just doing what the preacher says and not thinking about yourself. What, what, what is there that would actually harm me and hinder me from this pursuit of being as much like Jesus as I can? By of the world, I mean that the desire and the thing desired is characteristic of the attitudes and the mindset and the pursuits of those who belong to the wicked world. So the desire and the object being desired may be something very legitimate in and of itself. Our text does not say, use not the world. It says, love not the world. It's perfectly biblical for Christians to make use of this organized system of fallen humanity. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but maybe it'll give you a little pause to think when you go back home and talk about it. Now you won't be able to go to bed at night because you and your wife or your husband are talking about, did you hear what he said? This organized system of fallen humanity, this kingdom of Satan, is being used by the almighty God and creator to serve the needs of the church in any age and every age. They're not the redeemed. They will never be in glory. But God uses this world, this world system, to actually serve the needs of his own people. You ever thought about that? In 1 Corinthians 7.31, Paul refers to Christians who use this world but not abusing it. God's people are not being worldly when they use this world. The wicked of this world, for instance, produce clothes for us. The factories, the, the, the billionaires who are raking it in. Well, we have to have clothes to wear, and we have to have cars to drive, and we have to have food to eat. They're serving the Lord's people, unbeknownst to them. We need shelter, we need medicine, we need hospitals, we need protection. And we can use these things in a right way and not be guilty at all of worldliness. But, but when we use it in excess, when it becomes something that we live for, when we, we, we must have at all costs, then we're abusing the world and we are worldly. For instance, it's perfectly lawful in the eyes of God to desire to want to look nice. To use a comb, 
for those of us who can still use a comb. It's good. To wear decent clothes. And the world provides them. But really, you know, when your world, when your life becomes absorbed with buying clothes and you have to have the latest fashions and you're quite willing to lay down 300 pounds for a head covering, why? when you could get one that would do the job for 40 pounds. Why would you do that? It's fashionable. When a desire for food A lust for food becomes gluttony and is simply not eating the three meals a day but eating 30 meals a day. When a desire to provide for your family becomes a preoccupation with being wealthy and it begins to consume inordinate amounts of your time so that you cannot read the word of God, you cannot pray, you cannot get out of the house of God, tell me that's not worldliness. And the devil has done the job. Something legitimate, like providing for your family, becomes a lust for the things of the world. You've got to call it for what it is. The devil is a master at putting other names upon that which is plain sin so that we don't feel the guilt and the shame and therefore don't turn away from it and change our lives, which then becomes a matter of growing in holiness. No, our opinion trumps God's opinion. Not opinion, but his plain statement in Scripture. Our opinion, our ideas. When you have a greater desire, to, uh, desire, desire, that's, that's the lust of the heart. When you find yourself having a greater desire to stay home and watch TV or whatever media device you want to talk about than to go to church, What else would you call that but a lust of the world? Let's just be honest. When you know more about the characters of Hollywood than you do the men and women of the scriptures, when you can rattle off all of the major sports teams in your country. But you can't rattle off the books of the Bible.
Nothing per se wrong with sports. But it's become a lust. You've got more time for that than you do the things of God. You have every reason to suspect that you have been seduced by this fallen world. You've fallen prey to Satan's temptations. When something becomes that which controls your thoughts and your mind and your action, when it becomes whatever it is, it becomes between you and God, then it is what Paul calls worldly lusts. At that point in time, what may be a legitimate desire becomes a false god that we worship. And that is worldly, that is world-like. It's a false god. But the devil doesn't want you to think about it like that. It's an idol. It's taking the place that God alone deserves in your life. He is the source of all contentment. He is the satisfier of every need of your life, of every need of your home. I'm God, he says, and there's none else beside me. But to begin to replace God with people or things, pursuits, that's worldly. Why do you think the devil is constantly, and, and I think in our age, like never before, why is he putting constantly before us the lusts of the world? We are bombarded with it. You can't go to a grocery store, at least in my country, without being bombarded with all the lusts of the world. He's had so much success in tempting Christians along those lines because there is this world within us. Paul calls it the flesh, Back in James 1, the apostle says that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. If his own lust wasn't there, there would be no temptation. Satan came to Christ. There was no lust in Christ. There was no evil desire. And Christ said, he comes to me to tempt me, and he found nothing within me. But not so with us. He has an ally in your heart. He has an ally in my heart. And he knows it quite well. And he appeals to that ally. He appeals to the flesh. The flesh wants what he has to offer. When I am, you see, it's this self. It's this self. If you want to talk about holiness, really, it's about the death of self. When I am living for myself, when self is in control, then I am not glorifying God, I'm glorifying self. I am not living for God, I am living for self. I'm not enjoying God because the way to enjoy Him is to live for Him and become selfless. That means that part of this striving for holiness, there are things that must be crucified, that must be put to death, must be. And brothers and sisters, it's very, very hard because the flesh is not going to die. It will be with you all your days. 
And so it draws us away from the Lord. We grow cold. We grow cold, we grow prayerless. We grow scriptureless. And we just go through the motions, eking out an existence and not the abundant life. What one thing would you like to see the Lord change in your life? Just, just one. Would you go home and write it down? Think about it. If there's nothing, if there's nothing, then there's a bigger problem. What one thing would you want the Lord to change? I have a whole third and final point, but I'm going to stop. I want to leave that with you. This world is destructive to our love for Christ. It kills the desire, the hunger for the Lord. It quenches the influences of the Holy Spirit. It takes our eyes off of Christ. It takes our eyes off of his death. It takes our eyes off of his love for us. And so we limp along through life with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I don't want to live like that. And I don't think you want to live like that. Isn't our desire, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Don't you want to go higher? Don't you want to go higher? Don't you want to dig a little deeper? To be more like your Lord? Surely you do. Go home tonight. Just get along with the Lord. Say, Lord, this thing, this thing right here, is what I want you to deal with. This change. Kill this lust in my life that's ruining my pursuit of holiness. Let's bow in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh, our God and our Father in heaven, Thou art looking down. Thou art the one alone who can search every heart. 
Thou dost know the thoughts that thy people have had all throughout this meeting. Thou dost know the fears. Thou dost know the things that require divine intervention. Lord, we don't want this just to be another little series of meetings. Lord, step into our homes, into our hearts. Come and open our eyes up to the devil's devices. Grant us the wisdom to call sin, sin. Lead us on to higher ground. And when we return one final time tomorrow evening in thy will, seal thy truth with heaven's blessing. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.